starting a brand new series today, um, and I'm really excited about it. Uh, but it's also a little weird because um, four years ago, I preached uh, this exact same series. Um, I know it's completely normal for a pastor to preach the same passage multiple times in a career, but four years ago, we were a brand spanking new church, and we were coming out of Lent, and I wanted to settle into a long summer study. Um, and what better place to turn when you're starting a church is the book of the Bible that's about starting a church. That's about, you know, the start of the church. And so it felt like the right study at that point, And so we did it. Um, so we spent the entire summer in Acts and it was awesome. Um, but there's an awful lot of Bible left to preach. And so it, it seems weird to go back there again, only four years later. Um, to a book we've already studied. Um, but here's how this happened. Um, coming out of Lent, I knew I wanted to talk about life, like resurrection life, what it, what it should look like um, to live a resurrected life. And so as you know, we spent five weeks looking at some of Jesus' parables about what kingdom life should look like. Um, uh, but, oh, I forgot to say hello to our OFAM. Hey, guys, I hope I left my phone over there. Usually I watch them for comments and stuff, but... Hey, O'Fam, glad you guys are out there. Love you. Um, okay. <laughs> that ADD is awesome. Um, <laughs> so we, <laughs> so we dealt with kingdom life and, uh, and, and as that, you know, series was kind of coming to a close, I felt in my gut like it wasn't enough. Like we didn't really get deep enough. And so dealing with some of, um, you know, just, Ordinary life stuff, the everyday stuff, what the resurrection should mean to our everyday life. And dealing with that through the vagaries of parable can be a little bit um, obscure. Uh, didn't feel like it was down to earth enough. And so even though I'd only planned five weeks um, on this series on life, I was looking for ways to extend it or go deeper um, and get into more detail. And the entire week that I was kind of considering, what do I do next? Um, I kept saying to myself, what I'd love to do is preach through Acts again. That would be perfect right here. Um, uh, except I would brush it off because I was like, I can't do that. I did that like four years ago. You can't. It's too soon. Uh, too soon. So finally, I locked myself in my room and uh, I was like, I'm not coming out until I know what I'm preaching next. I don't care if I'm in here for the rest of the week. I'm not leaving my room until I know what's happening. And so I started to pray about it and I felt like the answer was Acts um, again. But I didn't feel like that was an option. And so... Um, I couldn't get over feeling like this was the right move. Um, and I kept trying to push it out. And then finally it was, it was like God spoke to my heart and he was like, yeah, um, because to preach acts now would, would be way too much like something that would act that would happen in the book of acts. Cause when God talks to me, he always has a sarcastic tone in his voice. Um, but it dawned on me that, that when we studied acts for the first time, Probably the single biggest theme that jumped out of this over and over and over again was how absolutely unpredictable and unexpected and almost counterintuitive everything God does in this book uh, was to the humans that were actually trying to keep up. And so the second that that thought kind of hit my heart, I decided to stop fighting it and we're going to make another run through this amazing book. Um, but here's the deal. I'm actually not intending to preach the exact same messages I preached last time. In fact, I don't even think I'm going to go back and, and look at my notes because I kind of want to go with this fresh and study it out again and see what God has to say to us right here, right now. So if you want to hear those messages and see how they compare, I'm sure you can find them in the, on the website in the deep archives somewhere from four years ago. I think it keeps them all. I didn't try. But, um, but I intend to write new messages for this time 
through from a from a different perspective than last time. And so those of you who weren't here for that one, if you want to hear them, go find them. Um, but we're doing it different. Last time we studied the book of Acts as like a how-to manual for starting a church. Like what should a church look like if we went to the Bible to find out? Because the early church was super effective at changing the world. They changed the whole dynamic of the world, and, and we want to be world changers. And so that's how we did it last time. And we spent an inordinate amount of time drawing out the tensions of the book. If you were here back then, you know we really hung on to that word tension. Every time there was a tension in the passage, we pulled it out and analyzed it. Uh, tension was kind of a buzzword back then we used all the time. This time we're doing it a little different. We're going to do kind of a general survey study, um, just, kind of, just kind of a light overview of each chapter as we go. Um, to look at this kind of amazing piece of literature with the, with the distinctive look at what this book has to say to a follower of Jesus today in this world. Like how, how a follower of Jesus might live in this world and what that might look like. Um, I've outlined 15 weeks um, that we have, um, and we're titling this series, Acts Like a Christian. Um, uh, in other words, having made it through Lent and celebrated the glorious resurrection of our Savior and talked through what choosing life should look like, um, now it's time to see how a group of people, Christians, um, live resurrected lives, actually, in our world. What kinds of things do they do and how do they do them? What kinds of relationships do they have and how do they cultivate them? What kind of tensions and pressures will they run into and how do they navigate them? Um, that's what we're after. Just dipping my toes into this book for the week. Um, I have to say I am super excited uh, and we may have to do this like every four years. Like it is, it feels like a totally different book than it was four years ago and I'm really Excited about it. Um, and another reason I'm kind of comfortable doing this is because the world is like super different than it was in 2017, like 2017. Like it's, it just feels bizarre to go that the world is way different than it was four years ago, but holy cow, this is like a whole different world. Like, and it'll be kind of fun to do this in four years and see what the world's like in 2025, you know, and, uh, and so anyway, we're not going to strictly do a chapter a week. Um, but we are going to start this week with the entirety of chapter 1. Um, so if you want to follow in your own Bible or app, we're in uh, chapter 1 of Acts. And, uh, and if not, the words will be on the screen. In my first book, I told you, Theophilus, about everything Jesus began to do and teach until the day he was taken up to heaven after giving his chosen apostles further instructions through the Holy Spirit. During the 40 days he suffered, after he suffered and died, he appeared to the apostles from time to time and he proved to them in many ways that he was actually alive. And he talked to them about the kingdom of God. Once, when he is, was eating with them, he commanded them, Do not leave Jerusalem until the Father sends you the gift he promised. As I told you before, John baptized with water, but in just a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. And when the apostles were with Jesus, they kept asking him, Lord, has the time come for you to free Israel and restore your kingdom? He replied, the father alone has the authority to set those dates and times and they're not for you to know, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you will be my witnesses telling people about me everywhere in Jerusalem, throughout Judea and Samaria and to all the ends of the earth. After saying this, he was taken up into a cloud while they were watching and they could no longer see him as they strained to see him raising into heaven. Two white robed men suddenly stood among them. Men of Galilee, they said, why are you standing here staring into heaven? Jesus has been taken away from you into heaven, but someday he will return from heaven the same way you saw him go. 
Then the apostles returned to Jerusalem from the Mount of Olives, a distance of about a half a mile. When they arrived, they went into the upstairs room of the house where they had been staying. Here are the names of those who were present. Peter, John, James, Andrew, Philip, Thomas, Bartholomew, Matthew, James, the son of Alphaeus, Simon, the zealot, and Judas, son of James. They all met together and were constantly united in prayer, along with Mary, the mother of Jesus, several other women, and the brothers of Jesus. During this time, when about 120 believers were together in one place, Peter stood and addressed them. Brothers, he said, the scripture had to be fulfilled concerning Judas, who guided those who arrested Jesus. This was predicted long ago by the Holy Spirit, speaking through King David. Judas was one of us and shared in our ministry with us. Judas had bought a field with the money he received for his treachery. Falling headfirst there, his body split open, gross, spilling out all his intestines, grosser. Then, or the news of his death spread to all the people of Jerusalem, and they gave the place the Aramaic name, uh, not even going to try, which means field of blood. Peter continued, this was written in the book of Psalms, where it says, let his home become desolate and no one living in it. It also says, let someone else take his position. So now we could, we must choose a replacement for Judas from among the men who were with us the entire time we were traveling with the Lord Jesus. From the time he was baptized by John until the day he was taken from us. Whoever is chosen will join us as witnesses of Jesus' resurrection. So they nominated two men, Joseph called Barsabbas, also known as Justice, and Matthias. Then they prayed, O Lord, you know every heart. Show us which of these men you have chosen as an apostle to replace Judas in this ministry, for he has deserted us and gone where he belongs. Then they cast lots, and Matthias was selected to become an apostle with the other eleven. This is the word of the Lord. Um, This book is actually the second part of a two-book set that most scholars Um, And commentators now call Luke Acts like it's one book. Um, uh, And there's a lot of speculation about who this Theophilus um, guy was. Um, There's actually um, some thought Theophilus means beloved of God. So some people think it was just a code word for Christians like I wrote you this book, O beloved of God. Um, But most people think Theophilus was a real person. Um, and there's a lot of speculations as to why Luke was writing him. Um, but one of the theories, which to me seems the most logical, uh, seems to be that Luke is writing his newly converted Roman patron uh, to explain why Paul was in prison. When we get to the end of the book, this will make a lot more sense. Paul was imprisoned in Rome, and this book spends kind of an inordinate amount of time at the end. A lot happens in the beginning, and then all of a sudden it just kind of settles into Paul and tells his story and how he winds up in prison in Rome. Um, and so it, it's most likely that Paul was, or that Luke was writing Theophilus to tell him why Paul was in prison and maybe to even try to get Theophilus to help Paul um, while he was in prison. Because the way they did prison back then wasn't like now. Um, you were just locked in and nobody gave you food or provisions. You, you had to have family come and do that for you. So you had to be kind of supported while you were in prison. And so most likely uh, Luke was trying to get Theophilus to support Paul while he was in prison. In Rome, um, and in order to, to kind of explain why Paul is, is in prison, you have to explain that Paul was going through the Roman world preaching Jesus. And to do that, you kind of have to explain um, who Jesus was and why this was such a big deal. So you got to go back and tell the Jesus story. And so it's it very likely that Paul or that Luke 
um, goes all the way back to Jesus' birth to tell the Jesus story just so that he can say, and this was the guy, this guy that did all this amazing stuff was the guy that Paul was going around preaching. And because he was preaching him, he got arrested, and that's why he's in prison. That seems to be the reason for the book. Um, And the reason this is compelling to me is because, especially for this morning's sake, and, and why I consider it noteworthy, is because it introduces the necessity for backstory, the necessity for context. Um, Luke is writing Theophilus. And he's like, boy, I got to give you the context of this whole thing. I got to give you the backstory here. I can't just tell you. Could have just said, hey, Paul was preaching this Jewish rabbi who died and came back and he got arrested for it. Can you help him? He could have done that, but that just doesn't tell the story. And so Luke was like, oh, man, there is so much backstory here that I have to tell you for you to truly understand what is happening here. To be accurate is not really enough. You have to know the backstory. Context is important. Um, in fact, one of the reasons I really wanted to study uh, the book of Acts this year, again, is because I spent a lot of time lately talking about the Jewish background of almost everything we're, we're studying. I read a lot of Jewish commentaries. I, I try to read the Talmud whenever pertinent. Um, and lately, uh, I've actually gotten some emails, some questions like, boy, you talk about the rabbis a lot. Like, what's the deal here? Like, are, are we Jewish? Like, is that what's happening? And... Uh, um, <laughs> I mean, no, we're not. But the answer for why I do that is because context matters. Um, the backstory is important. Uh, the, the Talmud and the other writings of the rabbis is what Jesus and his disciples would have been reading in that day. I think it's a, if we're going to understand what they wrote, we have to understand what they read. Like what was, what was the things feeding the way they read things? They referenced the Talmud all the time. They, they, they talk about them. There's one, anybody remember the, the story of the little boy who the disciples were trying to cast out a demon and they couldn't, they brought him to Jesus and Jesus, and he makes that weird statement. This one only comes out by prayer and fasting. You guys remember that? That's a quote from the Talmud. Um, the Talmud actually had like, sounds weird, but almost like recipes for how you cast out certain demons. They have this, there's a house demon, there's an ill sick demon, there's a, there, there's a mental demon, like there's all these weird demons, and they, some of them were like herbal recipes. It needs a little hyssop and some thyme, and he'll be fine. Like, it, and it's, and it's weird, and, and one of them, the, the, the Talmud says, this one only comes out by prayer and fasting. And so when you know that, and you read that passage, they bring this boy to Jesus. Jesus says, come out of him. It comes out. And then Jesus, I seriously think it was sarcastic, goes, this one only comes out by prayer and fasting. Like, it, it, and so, we, but some people take that as like a prescription. Like, oh, in order to do this, you have to pray and fast. And it seems like Jesus was saying, no, you don't. I'm Jesus. I just cast him out. Oh, but this one only has to, like, anyway. So what they read and, and what was in that culture is important. Context is important. None of that was in my notes. So now we're going to go long again. <laughs> and as much as the Jewish backstory is important, um, because the Jew, the, the writers of the New Testament were all Jews, um, we are not Jewish Christians. We're Gentiles. Um, we don't celebrate Pesach and Shabbat, and we don't pray the Shema, um, which begs the question, why not? Right? Um, why don't we do all the Jewish stuff? That Jesus did and that his disciples did and that almost every character in the Bible did. I mean, we follow Jesus's example in everything else. So why not follow his example in being Jewish? And uh, and the answer to that question is actually here in the book of Acts. And we're going to to draw that out together um, this summer, which I think is. Uh, is important because, like I said, I do lean into the Jewish stuff a lot. So it's important to know 
like, what about us? What's our backstory? What's our, as Gentile Christians, as non-Jewish believers, what is our backstory and, and where did it start? And that's what we're, that's what we're doing, um, for this summer. But for this morning, the first thing I want to dig into is what we call the ascension. Um, Jesus, uh, actually ascends to heaven. It says, so when the apostles were with Jesus, they kept saying, asking him, Lord, has the time come for you to free Israel and restore the kingdom? He replied, the father alone has the authority to set those dates and times. They are not for you to know, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you will be my witnesses telling people about me everywhere in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and the ends of the earth. After saying this, he was taken up into a cloud while they were watching and they could no longer see him as they strained their eyes uh, to see him raising to heaven. Two white men robed suddenly stood among them. Men of Galilee, they said, why are you standing here staring at heaven? Jesus has been taken from you to heaven and someday he will return from heaven the same way you saw him go. Now, there is some really cool theology in this passage concerning the Trinity and the second coming of Jesus and all kinds of other stuff, but that's not why we're studying the book of Acts this year. Um, we want to know what on earth this book has to say about living a Christian life today um, in our world. And we really want to dig into this morning um, as we talk about the ascension is why? Why does Jesus ascend? Why did he leave? Why on earth raise from the dead and then split? And uh, why would Jesus, who had already built this great momentum in Galilee and Samaria and even into Judea, um, not go back after the resurrection and shout, now we can get down to business. Like, because it sure seems like with the number, with the size crowds he was drawing, if he goes back after his crucifixion, Holy smokes, the place would blow up, right? So why not? Why the ascension? And, and, and more so, what does that have to do with us? And I think the answer is this. You were made for movement. For movement. Just before the ascension, Jesus tells his disciples, you're going to go into Jerusalem and all through Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth, which could almost serve as an outline um, for this book because that's exactly where they went. Like it, it almost followed. They start in Judea, they go through Samaria, and then they go all the way out to the ends of the Roman Empire. Um, but as, And if we want to go historical, this funny little group of ragamuffins spread the gospel all the way to Wellsville in 2021. Um, and the reason for this is movement. They moved. As we study uh, this book, we're going to see a great deal of movement, much of which is unexpected, and in response to a great amount of pressure. Uh, but the sheer ground that they cover in this book is actually astonishing. And it all serves to spread the gospel. Everywhere they go, they spread the gospel. But let me ask you this. How much of that movement do you think the disciples um, would have been on board for if Jesus was risen and alive and on his throne in Jerusalem? Let me ask it this way. If Jesus is alive and touchable and you can hear him tell his amazing stories and teach and answer the greatest questions you have in your heart, who in the world is signing up for a missionary trip at that moment? Who's like, yeah, I'll go. 
Reg and I probably say at least 10 times a week as we talk, I can't wait to ask Jesus that question someday. That sentence probably comes out 10 times a week. Whenever we get like where we're disagreeing on a theology and we can be both, you know, we're like, well, I can't wait to ask Jesus these questions. We both see the validity in each other's points and, and we know that we're never going to know until we ask Jesus. And so we say that on a regular basis. I cannot wait to ask Jesus that question. And what if you could? What if you could? And look, I know that I'm devilishly handsome and absolutely a riveting speaker. But if Jesus himself were preaching at a church in Overland Park right now, I hope you would not come listen to me speak. I hope you're right. If you can hear Jesus, don't come listen to me talk about Jesus. That would make no sense at all. I think the reason Jesus didn't stay on earth was because if he, he knew if he did, the disciples would never leave his side. And that simply wouldn't be good for them. It wouldn't be good for the church and it wouldn't be good for the world. He knew if if these guys are going to go, if they're going to move, I can't be here. I can't be here. Because if I'm here, they're just going to glue to me. I mean, who wouldn't? And Jesus wanted the gospel to spread. We were made for movement. Disciples of Jesus were made for movement. We're going to learn in this book that Christianity is not a stagnant faith. It's not a stagnant, motionless belief system. We're made for passion and progress and to advance the kingdom of God. And we're going to spend the next 15 weeks talking about what that looks like. So, um, to keep his disciples from living the stagnant lives that, that simply focused on just Jesus and just themselves... Jesus returns to heaven and his disciples are left um, in this, this strange command to go, but first wait. Like, you're going to go and be my witnesses, but hold on, don't go anywhere yet. Wait. Um, you're going to go from here to here to here to there, but don't leave Jerusalem until the Holy Spirit comes. Sit in this pregnant pause and wait. So that's exactly what they did. They wait. They just sit in Jerusalem and wait. Only they do have some business to tend to, you know, while they're waiting. Man, they're getting after it down there. (laughs) They decide to replace Judas. Peter gives a rather gruesome account of what happened to Judas after Judas uh, turned on Jesus. And and Peter also gives some Old Testament um, justification for why this should have happened and and uh, and then their 11 remaining disciples choose a new disciple, choose a new apostle um, to take Judas's place. And how they did it bothers a lot of people. It says, then they cast lots and Matthias was selected to become an apostle with the other 11. This is literally drawing a name out of a hat. This is they had stones and they would scratch a particular sign on it for each person. They'd throw them in a bag and they would shake them until one popped out. And when one popped out, that's who God wanted. This is uh, drawing straws, flipping a coin, you know, pick a number between one and a thousand. Ah, Matthias was closest. Like, whatever game of chance you want to come up with, that's how they chose the twelfth apostle. Years ago, a friend of mine named Caleb and I had these coins. Um, we called the God coins. And on Father's Day, the church we were going to at the time passed out these coins to all the dads. Um, they had some cheesy saying on it and some dad thing, you know. And uh, and so forever, we have just recently kind of read this passage. Um, so anytime we had a decision to make, we pulled out the God coin and flip it. And, okay, God wants us to get pizza. That's what we're, we're having pizza. Um, 
And I have to be honest, every time we, we flipped the coin, it was like 50% just to be goofy and about 25% superstitious curiosity. Like, I wonder if this is really how God does things. And, uh, and about 25% with that, like, fear of, of am I being irreverent? Like, like God, I hope God doesn't strike me down for playing this game. But, uh, but one day, there was a, quite a bunch of us around, our, pretty much our whole volunteer team. And we were trying to decide what to do after church that day. And I was like, well, we'll flip, we'll flip the God coin. So I get out the God coin. We make the decision on which thing is going to be heads and which one's tails. And... And, uh, and I, I flipped the coin and every eye followed the coin up and it rose through the air, reached its pinnacle and stuck on the little metal beam at the roof of the vaulted ceiling in that room. And we all stood there staring at the God going, wondering what that means. Like what, what did God just say to us? Like, does he not care? Are both our options bad? And God is like, no, 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 I'm not, I'm not picking this time. You got to pick. Yeah, we didn't really know. <laughs> But it bugs a lot of people that, that the disciples use a game of chance to make this big decision. And honestly, the people that it doesn't bother scare me a little more because they're like, yeah, that's, I'm fine with that. However, God wants to pick, you know, uh, let him, let him flip a coin. Like, well, that scares me. Um, but for many years, this God, after the God coin thing, my personal opinion, for is this a decent way to make decisions is yes, absolutely. It is a good way to make decisions if, if, and we're going to talk about that. If before drawing straws, (laughs) the disciples do a few things. Peter says, this was written in the book of Psalms where it says, let his home become desolate with no one living in it and let someone else take his position. So before anything else happens, they uh, they go to the Word of God. They they actually go to the Scripture. Uh, not only were there twelve disciples because of this really deep biblical Jewish connection to the number twelve, but Jesus had actually told them, "I assure you that when the world is made new and the Son of Man sits upon His glorious throne, you who have been my followers will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel." Um. And this is a little tough to fulfill. Jesus had given his word, and now one of them is is not only a traitor, but dead. And so this is weird. This is now hard to fulfill, this word of God, uh, with Judas out of the picture. So add into the scripture that Jesus has this word from Jesus, also these Old Testament scriptures that are feeding in. And there's a lot of Bible that goes into this decision. So they don't just flip a coin. They start in the scripture and they get a lot of background information from the scripture. And then they add something else. It says, so now we must choose a replacement for Judas from among the men who were with us the entire time we traveled with the Lord Jesus. From the time he was baptized by John until the day he was taken up from this. Uh, whoever is chosen will join us as witnesses of Jesus' resurrection. They nominated two men, uh, Joseph, who's called Justice, and Matthias. Now, as far as we can tell, none of these like stipulations are in the Old Testament or in the words of Jesus. They set these parameters using their own logic and wisdom um, and, and just kind of human common sense. Like, th- this is the kind of thing we're looking for here. Um, they're like, really, it should be somebody who's been here for the whole thing, like somebody who's seen the, the whole thing from beginning to end. So when we tell our Jesus story, they can confirm it, that they saw all the same things. Just makes sense. 
right? And, and then there's one more element we don't want to miss. It says, so they nominated two men. This is not a decision being made arbitrarily by one person. This is a group of people coming together, getting counsel from one another, um, talking together, making a decision in community. This isn't just Peter. Um, it isn't any one man flipping a coin. Um, they've searched scripture. They've used good human wisdom supported by and protected by a community of counselors. They've, they've met together. Um, and not only do they search scriptures and use their own wisdom and do it in community, but they do one more thing. It says, then they all prayed. They all prayed. Oh, Lord, you know every heart. Yeah. So they've studied the scripture. They've applied good human wisdom. They've sought counsel from one another and they've prayed for God's will. And then they drew names out of a hat. Then they flipped the God coin. So, so let me say this. If, if you have a big decision to make uh, and you've searched the Bible and gotten help to do so if you need to and you've, you've used any good, solid wisdom and principles or themes that you might get from the Scripture, you've sought wisdom from others um, and you've prayed really hard about it and you've narrowed it down to two options, sure, flip a coin. Why not? If you've done all the work, you've done all the hard work of, of searching Scripture and, and it passed all those tests, Let's see what God wants. You don't just flip a coin and go, you know, who's going to do that? You know, you put in the work and then you do it. It can be super dangerous to get caught up on the casting of lots here and skip over all the other stuff that goes into a big decision like this. But it seems to me either choice probably would have been great. They fulfilled the scripture. They, they fit their kind of wisdom stipulations they were looking for. Um, they prayed hard about it, and then they trusted God. And so that's how Matthias gave But the bigger question is, why does Luke tell us this story? Because from the whole rest of the book, we hear nothing else about Matthias. In fact, uh, church history and even church legend has nothing about Matthias. Like we don't even know. That in fact, some people have stipulated that the, the disciples messed up here and that they should have waited to fill that spot and let Paul fill that spot, which would have been absolutely ludicrous for reasons I don't have time to go into. But, um, but it makes you just wonder, why does Luke put this decision like it's a big deal, like it's one of the biggest chunks of chapter 1, and then not go back to it at all, like not even look at, at what this has to do with the story. We don't hear about Matthias again. And I don't actually know the answer to that question. Um, but <laughs> for the sake of our study, I want to look at this. I want to look at the movement, the trajectory from the beginning of this chapter to this point. From beginning of chapter 1 to the end. Way back when, before Jesus ascends, the disciples ask him a question. They say, so when the apostles were with Jesus, they kept asking him, Lord, has the time come for you to free the Israel and restore your kingdom? Now, this is a really fun question. Theologically, again, don't have time to go into it. It, it says a ton about what the disciples were looking for, what exactly they meant when they said kingdom. Even after uh, the cross and the empty tomb, they're still looking for a military leader. Um, they're still clueless about what is actually happening here. They're like, okay, now can we do this thing? Like, even though Jesus has died and raised from the, from the dead, they still think they're going back to... Uh, like a military messiah who's going to conquer Rome and, and do the thing. Um, in fact, uh, they were waiting um, for Jesus to take his throne. Um, but, uh, but what Jesus says here is kind of in direct contrast to that. He says, um, when you receive power from the Holy Spirit, when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, you will be my witnesses, um, telling people, 
everywhere. In the Roman world, this is something um, a sitting king does. Uh, everyone feared a power vacuum in these days. Usually when a king died, there was almost always a war to figure out who was going to be the next king. So all the, the kind of powerhouses would then fight each other. Whoever wins becomes the next king. And for the common person, this was terrible. Like it was terrible for the whole nation to go to war again. And, and you don't know what side to pick and if it's going to change your whole... So a power vacuum was a bad thing. Um, and everybody hated him. So they had this thing they would do when a king would die and like his successor would immediately take the throne. They would send out heralds and they would say, the king is dead, long live the king. Meaning the king is dead, but there's no vacuum. We have a new king. The king is dead, long live the king. You guys ever heard that phrase? The king is dead, long live the king. That means everything's okay. There's no power vacuum. Yes, the king is dead, already replaced. The kingdom is safe. Everything's at peace. And so... They would what what they would uh, send out was was messengers, heralds. Then they would go. The king is on the throne. They would go all throughout the kingdom announcing the king is on the throne. Everything is okay, and so there's no need for a bloody transition. There's no need for for any of that. And so when Jesus says, so they're waiting for Jesus to go with war, take his throne. And Jesus sends them out as witnesses saying, I'm already on the throne. Like, you need to go out and declare that, that long live the king, that Jesus is Lord, that everything is okay. Um, and so there's a, there's a distance between where Jesus is basically going, no, you don't understand the kingdom. I'm already on my throne. And they're like, when are you going to take the throne? You know, and so they've got this, this distance. And of course, we could spend weeks on why the disciples feel this and this kind of Old Testament prophetic voice that kind of gave them this idea way back in the Jewish history. But that's not what we're doing today. The, the, uh, there's also the fact that Jesus gave them a wholly unsatisfactory answer to their question. Um, where he basically says, uh, the Father alone has authority to set these dates and times, and they're not for you to know, which is really a fun answer. Give up. That is so far above your pay grade. Stop it. Stop it. You're nowhere close. Um, we could spend forever talking about kind of the human fascination with the end times and when Jesus is returning and, and how this verse plays into that. Again, that's not what we're doing today. In fact, the reason we are here today is one word that I really want to draw out of this. It says, when Jesus, uh, so when Jesus, uh, so when the apostles were with Jesus, they kept asking him, I get excited and then I can't read. Um, so when the apostles were with Jesus, they kept asking him, Lord, has the time come for you to free Israel and restore the kingdom? In the course of one chapter, the disciples moved from bystanders who were fully prepared to sit back and watch Jesus do all the heavy lifting. Jesus, when are you going to do something? When are you going to move? And by the end of the chapter, they're fully functioning participants in the work of God. Think about the magnitude of this thing that this bunch of misfits do at the end of chapter 1. The entire history of the Jewish people going back to Jacob is defined by 12 tribes. In the wilderness, the camping arrangements were by tribe. In the promised land, the land was divided up by tribe. The high priest wore a stone on his vest to represent each of the 12 tribes. Every Israelite was identified by their tribe. And along comes Jesus, and he tells his 12 closest friends, the big plan here is for each of you to rule a tribe of Israel. 
The scope of this decision is almost too big to comprehend. This is all of Jewish history rolled into these 12 guys. And what makes it crazier is with that much weight bearing on this moment, the disciples felt not only compelled, but qualified to make this call. To be like, we need to choose another guy. We need to. Just barely a while ago, they were like, Jesus, when are you going to do something? And now they're going, we, we need to make a decision here. We need to move. We need to do something. Now tell me that this something that would have... Tell me that this is something that would have happened if Jesus had stayed. Had Jesus stayed, if he hadn't ascended, can you see them going, Jesus, step aside for a second. We need to pick a 12th guy. No. They go, Jesus, who do you want? Like, pick a guy. Like... And so with Jesus leaving, they've moved from spectators to participants. They've moved from watchers, God, when are you going to move, to God, send us to do something. This small group of guys, in about nine verses, moved from being 100% ready to see Jesus do something amazing to them, to about 99% ready to see God do something through them. They've transitioned in one chapter. That is a huge transition, and it's why I chose this message for this morning. We're about to spend 15 weeks in the book of Acts, and the entire reason that we're in this study is because I believe that God is calling us, Open Table Community Church, to get moving. I'm hoping that through this series, we will feel both compelled and empowered to actively do our part in advancing the kingdom of God. I mean, how many of you have read the news lately or scrolled through social media or had a conversation with anybody Gen Z, frankly, and thought, boy, I wonder how long God is going to put up with this. Anybody felt that? Come on, be honest. Yeah. Like, like when does God say enough is enough? Right? When does God say this is, we're done? And I think that's where the disciples were at the beginning of chapter 1. Jesus, when are you going to do something? When is enough enough? When are you going to step up? God, when are you going to draw the line? But in one chapter, they move from, when is Jesus going to do something? To asking the question, when, when do we get started? When do we start to bring healing? When do we start to change things? When do we start to move? C.S. Lewis says in Mere Christianity, For Christianity thinks that God made the world, the space and time, heat and cold, and all the colors and taste, and all the animals and vegetables are the things that God made out of His own head. As a man makes up a story. But it, which is Christianity, also thinks that a great many things have gone wrong with the world that God made, and that God insists and insists very loudly on our putting them right again. God insists on our putting the world right again. That's our job. Honestly, I think it's why Jesus ascended. If He hadn't, every single one of us would see evil, and we would say, Jesus, there's a poor person over here, you need to do something. This person doesn't have enough. Jesus, you need to give him one of those fish sandwiches. But by leaving, Jesus truly empowered 11 people to take real ownership in advancing 
the kingdom of God. So how do we respond to this? Uh, yesterday morning, we actually celebrated uh, Mother's Day for Esther. Um, uh, we managed to get every single one of our 16 kids and their spouses and girlfriends and all the grandkids in one place at one time, which is like a crazy feat. Like it's really hard to do. Um, and I made breakfast, which was awesome. Actually, my son Noah made coffee cake and monkey bread for after breakfast. But I went to the store the night before. And when I walked in with Esther, I said, let's just use this as an opportunity to be grateful that I don't do the shopping because we would be broke all the time. Because I, I spent so much money on one meal. It was ridiculous. Like, I, I don't know how she does it. But um, I went to the store the night before, bought all the ingredients. I came home, made biscuits and gravy and Paula Dean bacon. If you've never had Paula Dean bacon, here's what you do. You take a cup of brown sugar and a tablespoon of chili powder and you mix it up and you, you put it in a bag and shake the bacon all up and then you lay it out on a, on a cooling rack in the oven with a pan underneath it and, and you, you bake it for 20 minutes and it's like sweet and a little bit spicy. Oh God. And it's so bad for you. It is so bad for you. But you thick cut bacon too because it's amazing. So I made biscuits and gravy and Paula Dean bacon and two different kinds of eggs and yogurt parfaits with fresh fruit and granola and lemon curd and I had orange juice spritzers and coffee and grapes for 25 people. It was quite a spread. But here's the deal. I would love to take credit for that meal. Um, but I spent Friday night and part of Saturday morning asking my wife for advice. Like, when do I need to start this? And what time do I need to get up? And I'm writing down recipes because I don't have a clue how to make anything. And she's, you know, and so, uh, and I wanted to make sure everything kind of came out. You know, I would have just cooked the eggs at like six in the morning. Like, they'll be fine, you know. But I want it all to be warm, you know, and I don't know how to do any of that. So I'm, I'm, I'm Saturday, Friday night, I'm asking for advice. And how do I do this? How do I do that? Early Sunday morning, I was hitting her up for recipes and, and uh, for her sausage gravy and her polydine bacon and her coffee cake. So in other words, I, I did the work, but Esther was the brains and the real power behind the operation. And we're about to spend 15 weeks looking at what Christians are supposed to do, what they're supposed to do, how they're supposed to behave in the world. It's going to be very activity heavy in this study. Specifically geared toward getting us moving and active in advancing the kingdom of God in our homes, in our jobs, in our neighborhoods, our communities, even here in our church. But please don't think for one second that I'm suggesting that we can do anything good for the kingdom of God by simply rolling up our sleeves and getting to work. I'd like to revisit two verses from the beginning of this chapter. Once they were... He was eating with them and he commanded them, don't leave Jerusalem until the Father sends you. Or until the Father sends you the gift he promised. I told you before, John baptized with water. But in just a few days, you'll be baptized with the Holy Spirit. We were never intended to do anything for the kingdom of God alone. Next week, we're going to dive into when and how the Holy Spirit enters the narrative. But for now, please know that you are powerless To do any true good alone. Did we just die? It's my fault. Oh, okay. Jesus told his disciples who had spent three years under his direct tutelage. Maybe the most qualified people on earth to ever exist. People who had spent three years learning directly from him. Don't you dare move until the Holy Spirit comes. 
because you will botch it if you act alone. That's my paraphrase. That's not actually in the. If I had tried to make that breakfast without Esther, it would have been a disaster. I'm not suggesting that we all just work harder. That's not what I'm saying. This is God work. God does the lion's share of the heavy lifting. But I do want us to begin kind of right now this morning to shift like the disciples did in chapter 1. From looking at the kingdom of God as something we watch God do to seeing the kingdom of God as something that, that, that takes us, that, that we advance strategically as we cooperate with the Holy Spirit in our world. Our faith is not a spectator sport. Being the people of God is participatory. We have a part to play. And, I, and I'm not trying to like drum up volunteers for the ministries in the basement. Although if, if you're interested, we will not say no. Like if you, if you want to work with kids, by all means. But this isn't about getting busy here in this building on Sunday mornings. That's not what we're talking about. This is about changing the way we see our world our home, our work, our neighborhood. This is about living like disciples of Jesus in our own version of the book of Acts every day. So the way I'd love to respond to this message as we gather around the table and sing one last song is for you to hear in your heart that ancient command of Jesus. Wait for a minute so that you can go and change the world forever. So I challenge you this week, start reading the book of Acts. Get the Bible app, you know, Play Store or, or App Store, and it has a great audio thing. You can just put it on Acts and, and listen to the whole book. It's better if you do it audio, I think, because then you won't break it up into verses. It's good to just hear the story, hear the narrative roll through your, roll through your head. But for the next 15 weeks, we're going to be here. Just put that book over and over and over again. And... Uh, And as we take communion today, as we ingest these elements, and as we dive into this long study, just feel that pregnant pause, that active waiting as we anticipate what God wants to do in our lives and in our church this summer. Let's go to the table.